Welcome back to the channel, guys. My name is Lucas, and I'm joined today by my brother and my father at the same time. I think this is our first podcast together, the three of us. We have a WhatsApp group together in which these two gentlemen battle it out <laughs> on the <laughs> weekly for sure. And, you know, reading text sometimes can be a bit tiresome, so I prefer to just talk it out and we'll see who uh, who gets the win today. Just kidding. Um, so before <laughs> before we start, I want you both to explain what is most different between you two, the way you think, because I think I wanted to say something about that. So yeah, I can start. And then I think uh, whatever I haven't said, uh, our dad will fill us in. Uh, how should I be referring to you? Dad, boss, what do you prefer during this conversation? Father, my liege. Yes, my my lord and savior. Um, no, like I, I think, it, I think well, it's at one at one at one point in time, Lucas started to call me bastard. Oh yeah, as my nickname, right. which I didn't like that very much, I must say. And uh, and so I I asked him to change that to buzzard, which is buzzard. bird. Yeah, actually, swan is my real totem bird, but. Um, <laughs> <laughs> buzz it is fine buzz you can call me a buzz i don't know all right i'll i'll i, I might just do a bunch of different things um okay. but for now yeah i i think it's on the one hand i have something of that is that aims for um a more systematic way of thinking and and in that sense it's 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 it aims for clarity more so than i think what you're on about because you're very associative um and therefore you combine all these insights from psychology and theology and uh philosophy and history and anthropology and all that together uh, in a way that isn't always clear to me but in some ways that's also much richer and more holistic um that said that's not to say that you're imprecise like actually we often also debate the fact that for instance i prefer to go for symbolic associations and you prefer uh or at least I uh, I interpret it in a way that where you seem to prefer historical accuracy, uh, which I also understand. So in that sense, like you're you're the more systematic uh, thinker of the two of us, um, and yeah, my systematic thought is just coming from the fact that in philosophy I've just been trained in a particular way to think about societal issues think about historical issues but we always have to think is this regarding epistemology or ontology or are we uh talking uh imperative thinking you know so like so you have to all these these categories that we put it into and therefore we also know what kind of questions are appropriate where and we try to distinguish a lot um but then again the dark side of that type of analytical analytical thinking can also be that you know you think so in boxes that it's difficult to see the the forest for the trees if that makes sense um so that would just be a brief summary from my side i'm not sure would you would like to add to that or maybe disagree yeah no no i think you 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 make an excellent job out of it i mean i was never that much interested in philosophy at first um and you've really opened up that world for me so that's interesting i'm learning a lot uh, just by listening to the conversation you guys had um that was that was perfect I, and I, I actually i want to make a compliment here i think you're not just being a philosopher um mm -hmm. you're also very good at placing that philosoph philosophical discussion into sort of a historical framework 
And I think that is that is wonderful because then it touches on my passion. My passion is to see real people and to see why they come to certain ideas and uh, and experiences. Yes. Now I do have a problem with philosophy in the sense that it tends to monopolize language. Like, oh no no no, this is what it means. And and, I, and as a philologist, so we we actually as theologies in theology we actually study language a lot. We study a lot the ambiguities of language and the associative power of that. And I think I know that you are sensitive to that as well, but it's not something that is particularly encouraged in philosophy. Yeah, it depends. I think it really depends because sometimes, obviously, we have to go back to the Greek use of a word. And then, you know, so like there's discussions on how we use a word like hydaimonia by Aristotle. Like, can we translate that as happiness or flourishing or do both terms not fully cover what is meant there? So like, obviously, in some sense, for some terms, very important. And for other terms, it seems to be less so. And that does create... Yeah, I would disagree with both, actually. So yeah. that's an interesting one. But that's simply because of, from a language point of view, and uh, um, a, a history of things that I am interested in, and I'm mm -hmm. interested in the first century and, and the second century and perhaps a few centuries before. Yeah. Now, human flourishing and uh, happiness is, is really stuff that is important since, say, the 1700s. Yeah. So you guys are translating, in my opinion, <laughs> mm -hmm. concepts that are important to the discussion of those ages or present age into uh, a Greek word that has a very different um, um, etymology and probably also a somewhat different meaning, a bit more barbaric perhaps than modern philosophers would like. Yeah, but that's, I think that's also like, that's kind of what I'm trying to say. That's precisely why we, um, why we attend everyone to the complexities of those words. You know, we don't say like, oh, Aristotle just wants us to be happy <laughs> and then think like, yes, the, the 21st century understanding of happiness, that's what we're talking about here. So yeah. like, obviously, yes, we're trying to be aware yeah. of that. Yeah. Now, so so I, I love that. And, and I must say you have opened up philosophy to me uh, and, I, and, and I'm really appreciative of that. Of course, I'm not a philosopher. I'm an industrial engineer. That means I was first trained as a scientist, trained as a scientist. And I've always been busy with um, with nature, with biology, um, with uh, theology, uh, psychology, as you say. So all those other areas are interesting to me. And I, um, uh, I would say with Lucas, perhaps I'm a materialist at heart. So I'd like to see what is there in material terms. And right. I study theology, so... I am sort of drawn to the idealist world. So, but, but it's a constant battle. So I, I cannot be happy to just go into an idealist perspective without then checking how that works out in the material world. And awesome. I really like the bits and pieces. I actually like to go and see how then DNA would function and how uh, epigenetic markers would function on that. I, I would really want to understand. I can't understand everything, but, I, right. but I'm interested in it. Yeah, and, and then for me, I think that that because I, I'm trained more philosophically and less so uh, scientifically, I guess, uh, it's easier for me to make the jump to just, you know, um, how should I say that, uh, entertaining the thought that perhaps, you know, what we see in terms of materialistic processes uh, pr processes is just 
uh, a reflection of something that is immaterial underneath. And if it's just a reflection, it can always be much less than the complexities that are immaterial. Uh, and therefore, and, and that's like obviously the difference between the thing in itself and the appearance that we get in Kant and then that gets developed like through the um, centuries. And then we have people like Bernardo Castro today, which obviously we share an interest um, in. Um, but then that makes me slightly more comfortable to say like, yes, the material, the material world is very interesting, but also um, in a limited way in some ways to me, because it's very possible that it doesn't show the whole picture. And in some ways, you know that because like, obviously, like you have a, a faith in God and you know that God doesn't fit fully into the exclusively materialistic realm but at the same time you like to find as much as possible there probably because everyone can agree on it and you your observations can agree with it is, is that kind of that well a... even more than that i thought we had a very nice little uh discussion on bernardo castrop's thinking i i really appreciated that um but in the end um creation is material so even though it can be all be a product of idealism. I, I, I really appreciate that. In the end, I am touching this 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 finger now. Um, yeah. I'd like to know how that works, and maybe even. And I thought, um, maybe as an introduction, a little bit. Kastrup had a very interesting interview. You you clipped that for me. Uh, maybe you should say a little bit what it was about, and then I'll say what I think. Um, how that works for me. Uh, sometimes it will be more difficult for me to tell you what it was about because I listened to the whole thing and I just sent you the clip of it. But if I remember correctly, he was um, asked about about Adam and Eve and how we can interpret sort of the story of the fall and that for him that is tied to the fall into metacognition. It's the moment where that's actually very similar as Peterson does. It's like the moment that Adam and Eve realize like they become conscious in the meta conscious sense so they become aware that they are aware and therefore you know they're oh now like we see that we're, that we're naked and therefore we're ashamed and you know knowledge of good and evil comes with that but according to custom that is also the start of suffering because our uh, meta cognition is necessarily dissociated cognition and that's also why he says god is not metacognitive god is not a dissociated alter ego God is mind at large, but that also means that God is not aware that God is aware. God is just consciousness without being aware of the fact that God is conscious, which is a radical claim. Um, but then he also, I think, said a lot about how he nonetheless agrees also with a lot of Christian thought because he thinks like the remedy to this dissociative, dissociative thinking is actually that we sacrifice ourselves to the whole. And that's Christianity embodies that in an individual, in a divine individual who is Jesus Christ. So um, I think that covers it. Yeah, 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 that was very much uh, the thing that you sent to me. I didn't have the time to go through the whole interview. But I, and then I was very happy about that because um, what you do with Kastrup is you, you use modern words um, that perhaps. Um, invite people into the conversation, whereas I would use biblical words that may not invite people. And now he's making this little trip into my biblical world. 
yeah which which is great right and i should also add to that like what's fun is that i think at some point wolfgang schmidt was asked the question yeah bernardo kostrup uh, interprets the the fall in adam and eve like as the fall into meta consciousness what do you think about that and i think wolfgang schmidt was just like i really don't see why we need these modern terms like you just have the early church fathers you have the bible you could go to there we don't need to talk about consciousness and cognition like these are like it's just uh 20th century or like modern i guess and postmodern baggage that we don't need to bring back to these texts but for others it might invite them to the text that otherwise wouldn't be interested in it so yeah so there's a choice you make eh? for me the 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 use of biblical words means i sort of tap into an associative language of centuries and it has an incredible richness to me and um, I can say something about one of these things and then other people will relate to it even and they will discover things that I never put in there simply because this world is so large, this, 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 this multivalent uh, uh, universe of language is, is so huge that it is it's simply, um, uh, it is creative in a way. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas if, if, if you take me into Heidegger or in Hegel, I struggle and need to learn the words and then I know, okay, this is how he means these words and then I can only take them in that sense and it's very precise, etc. But yeah. it's also somewhat detached from everyday lived experience and certainly from the creativity of inviting others into yeah. um, feeling around these words, not just thinking about them. So there is a different, different perspective, but I, I, I do appreciate both. I, I would also say like that just because I, I totally agree with you um, and I certainly have my problems with the thinking of uh, the Heideggers and the Hegels of this world. And at the same time, like there's something to be said that they, especially someone like Heidegger, he emphasized that. Um, and I think you do this too, to some extent. And for Feiki does this, it's just to point to the fact that there are some, dare I say, historical accidents that have occurred, which now, um, motivate us to interpret words uh, completely in a completely different manner than the ancients did, for instance. And by doing that, we lose a lot of its meaning. And that's sort of what they're often pointing to is like, you know, when uh, that's kind of what invites, for instance, even like the Peugeot uh, brothers saying like, you know, if we're talking about earth, like we don't mean or like, you know, this, this globe as opposed to like all the other planets or something like that. And when we point to heaven, you know, like, it's, and, and that's, that's very important to, to keep that in mind. And therefore I do think they're not detached. They're not just saying like, Oh, this is the meaning of this word. It's like, no, they're actually trying to ground it in thinking that worked for much longer for many more people in a much more, um, I should say it like emotionally and philosophically enriching manner. And thereby trying to revive that notion of it, as opposed to just creating a new meaning, if that makes sense, or a new word. Yeah, it's, you just sometimes feel excluded. Yeah. Huh? Mm -hmm. So if you're not part of that discussion, of that discussion of philosophers together, uh, and you come with, hey, here I am, and, uh, <laughs> and mm -hmm. in, uh, in, this, in, in, in this world, like, God does not exist, someone can say, yeah. Uh, and um, that is, in a sense, true. And in a, another sense, it's not true. But depends on how you experience the word "exist." Um, and then you can, of course, join a number of philosophers who have gone a certain way. And then you feel somewhat excluded if you come from a different perspective. And I think that's what's happening a lot. And then choosing new words allows you to escape that. But also, just like the Viveki words, require you to do a bit of study 
and then someone else comes in and doesn't know what the difference is between perspectival knowledge and um, uh, procedural knowledge, for instance. And then, mm -hmm. and then, oh yeah, everybody has to study. Whatever you do with language, it's always come falling short of of, of of universal communication. Yeah. Um, okay. True. I think Good. in part we have to relearn symbolic language because I feel really I understand the criticism of of the philosophers, but they were also using that language to figure things out because it just, you know, like it, yeah. it definitely served its function. And then I think what the Peugeot brothers do so brilliantly is they touch the modern world a little bit. Of course, they grew up in it and they touch it just enough uh, so that they can make themselves understandable to us. And that took a while. I think <laughs> you see with Jonathan Peugeot, how he's changed over the years. Now he's more and more adapted to the modern world. And now he's able to use language that, you know, the average guy, like he would say, can understand to then see, oh, wait, earth is this. Oh, wait, heaven is this. And I mean, I, of course, see that as a viable solution. I think there's a lot of different opinions about it. But, um, but yeah, well, it depends for which purpose. Huh? But for, for our enjoyment, I think what Peugeot is doing is, 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 is perfect because he's, he's reusing the old words and then doing that in a way that he's able to discuss it with the new guys, like the cognitive scientist that, that, that John yeah. Fafeki is. Yeah. I think that's, that's brilliant. And I think yeah. like, that's also, that's a wonderful part of this moment in history in, in terms of uh, scientific progress is that, you know, we run into these questions with quantum mechanics that everyone is just like thinking, like even like the most hardcore scientists are like, we can't actually take one particular view for granted. We need to come up with strong arguments for each view. And that's why, and then you come up with <clears throat> how does our conscious experience lay itself out? And then you think, think about how certain properties emerge. And then, you know, that actually comes very close to that type of language. And therefore it's actually kind of wonderful because then I think you can read many of the stories um, of the Bible in a way that is very patterned and therefore also follows patterns that we find in our own psyche quite often that's obviously this is why the Jungian Peterson and the symbolist uh, Peugeot work so well together because they both were, think that the archetypes work on the individual and the collective level yeah, yeah. I feel also uh, sorry go ahead yeah go ahead uh, Lucas please well I feel that um, what's so interesting about the Bible I think Wolfgang Smith puts it very well is that you can be esoteric in your understanding and you can be exoteric in your understanding and you'll both get what he would say is salvation. Um, so you can read the story very surface level. And I think this would be much more effective in the times of, of Jesus himself, where of course you read the stories and you really believe the myth, right? Like it's, it's your cultural grammar as well. I think it's less and less so the case for us now, but you can do that. And at the same time, you could have a St. Augustine being like, Hey, wait, I, I didn't believe these stories when I believed them exoterically or literally, but now I've been shown by these masters, like, okay, this is, this is also a way to understand it. And in many ways, I think that's the, that's the brilliance of it. And at the same time, what I also like about the Peugeot brothers is they're not on anyone's side because no one is like them except for some Orthodox people in the Russian mountain somewhere. So <laughs> either you get really offended because he's not on your team but he's not on the other people's team either. So you have the materialist Christians, the materialist atheists. Of course, it's not exactly like this, but you know what I mean. And um, they, they form this bridge that I think, I think it's, uh, 
it's more successful than they would have expected and maybe than other people would have as well. So I'm really like, I keep praising these guys on this on this channel, but I think uh, mm. it's worth doing because I think their role is only going to increase. And uh, so that's the yeah. only thing I wanted to say about it. For sure. Um, for me, to add to that is um, I've, I feel some familiarity with what they are doing, with what Kastrup doing, is doing, um, with what Vivek is doing, simply because of my PhD project, which touched upon Gnostic Christianity, often misunderstood in the present-day world, and often used, uh, no, we're not Gnostic, and I, I, I sometimes reassure people I am not Gnostic as well. But the richness of thinking through Platonism, together with biblical criticism that, that happens in, the, in those groups um, is so close to what Kastrip is doing, to what Viveki is doing, to um, the, all, all of the symbolism that, that we find then in the Peugeot brothers. It's so rich that, that I feel sort of um, privileged to, to have studied that and to be able to come into these discussions with an understanding, hey, this is what people in the second century thought or the first century thought, and it's very much like what these guys are saying now. Okay. Um, so this, uh, like for instance, talk about the Genesis story, Philo of Alexandria, noting that there are two, and that's not a Gnostic, it's a, it's a Jewish person, Jewish philosopher from, from the first century, but in Alexandria, informing the later movements among which there are uh, the Gnostics. Um, he's reading uh, Genesis as a story of the creation, and then he notes that there are two stories, and then he simply reads the second story as the uh, story of our soul, rather than, say, an external paradise. So this is already there. And then you've got all these, these developments, and, and, and I, I love Origen's take on it, um, uh, how these then develop, uh, and it's 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 too beautiful for words. And for instance, when Kastrup then claims God is is not metacognizant, then uh, for me that that's fine because in the end, uh, reading those texts, we know that ultimately, if God is to be eternal, He is without time. He is without place. And without time and place, there is no discursive reasoning. And if there's no discursive reasoning, then you're not metacognizant. So all of this is already there. And, and they use names for, for uh, say, the highest level of being God, like the deep or the unspoken. Um, that kind of idea is already there. Mm -hmm. They have struggled with these things. So that's, that's, that's very interesting to... Uh, to see and the idea that that human beings coming from paradise fall into consciousness that is really something that the church fathers would be happy to entertain and would be happy to talk about um, so this symbolic interpretation helps us and was ever always so intended so it's almost since the 16th century that we embark on this literalist journey that we sort of come at loggerheads because in the early days, science and religion were the same. Religion was interested in everything behind what could be seen. And 
the speculation there would inform the religion. Think about uh, the, the, the the seven sages of Greek uh, philosophy uh, before the pre-Socratics. Um, so, so science and religion were so much intertwined. And then we came to this point at one point that, that we started to say, well, science and religion are opposed because religion holds on to a outdated worldview and science is sort of overtaking it. And then I said, yeah, yeah but that's, that's not religion. That is 16th century <laughs> interpretation that uses the Bible to answer any question. And we're starting to ask a lot of questions by then. Uh, and, and sort of uh, going into overdrive there. We don't have to do that. We can, and that's going back to, to for instance, the Eastern, Orthodox, Eastern Orthodox tradition. So, yeah. yeah and no, we I've still just... haven't spoken about Lucas. Lucas, <laughs> where do you stand in this, in this way of looking at uh, uh, the, 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 the discussions that you are so beautifully collecting uh, now in your uh, interviews and podcasts etc how do well, you see your yeah thank you i'm a bit of a coward to be honest because i um i change my my look very often so <laughs> in a sense i i find it difficult to commit to one because also i know that well i don't know that i know it for sure but history has shown me that i was wrong most always so I don't cling to one way of looking at the world as, as an absolute way. And uh, maybe you're wrong about that. Yeah, <laughs> likely. So I, I was more materialistic in my thinking, of course, as a teenager. Then I slowly started to deprogram from that. So listening to Joe Rogan, then having, um, of course, my, my experience that I had with psychedelics, which still sort of took place in a materialistic paradigm in a sense that I came out of it thinking that, you know, I started reading about elusives and being like, oh, it's all about this substance, you know, it's like, did they do psychedelics? Did Jesus, Jesus with the wine cult and, you know, these theories, I find them so entertaining and I found them more than entertaining at the time. I found them like they were my meaning, you know, it's like, mm -hmm. oh, I covered this and then studying Egyptology, I was like, where can I find the little substance in the text and stuff? Um, that has shifted a lot. And then with, with Kastrup, I started shifting, shifting my views a lot. Like, of course, metaphysical idealism is the polar opposite of materialism. And I found that, that also very interesting. Um, but I still, still know that Kastrup cannot be 100% right. And I, I really entertain Peugeot. And I entertain Wolfgang Smith and something inside of me tells me that I shouldn't listen to these scientists too much. I feel more comfortable with the traditional worldview, um, meaning a Christian, for example, that, that, that understands the world symbolically as much as possible. That's the one I, I find the most assurance in, let's say. But um, I listen gladly to to a lot of people on mm. this topic. So, yeah, that's where I stand now. Like I, I carry I carry this Orthodox cross, even though I'm not part of an Orthodox church, always with me because it's the only thing that that I I have my faith in. Um, it's my skin in the game, and I I mean I write in my journal. Um, 
they say some people they they pray best with a pen and i'm definitely one of those i think and i i feel in contact with um with god in that sense and it's through my christian worldview so right i would say what best describes my worldview is is christian but um open to <laughs> to many different thinkers and i see in no way that a christian symbolic worldview excludes um, all these other points of view i think that openness is something that the three of us share otherwise we wouldn't be in a in this little uh, app group that we have together yeah uh, we're willing to learn no that's for sure and um again likely wrong about <laughs> likely wrong <laughs> most things that's the only way to learn huh? you test something you you bump your nose yeah and then you learn again it's true but i do think it's it's worth binding yourself to something so yeah. this is just my my ground that I'm standing on. Yeah. And I realize that ground is not golden and there, there's many flaws in it. And, and let's say, but I, I will defend it and I will see it as my, it's just the, the glasses I've been given. And I think they're very good glasses. I can see pretty clearly in them. So yeah. that's, that's what I'd say about it. And I would like to say that you're also able to, to tease out a lot of what people are thinking uh in a way that's accessible to everyone um, that's what i try to do <laughs> yeah we'll, we'll see if that if that scales but i like to test it in conversation it's really fun yeah i see. think i already said that like that i just thought you were like for everyone who is uh listening to this and hasn't listened to lucas conversations on the meaning code channel with karen karen i'll Wong. post them also yeah i think uh i would go there and because I think Lucas has such a concise and clear explanation of uh, Wolfgang Smith's ideas, who in some ways is a very obscure and difficult uh, to comprehend thinker. Uh, and it was just, it's like, I truly believe you when you say you've listened to like the podcast, uh, that, that podcast interview with him so many times that, that you've read and reread some of, some of his books, because it's so clear that it's like, that you had it. Oh, all right, sorry for the crash, guys. I didn't want to interrupt my brother, but go ahead. Yeah, no, I think um, I was just amazed by the way in which you were able to just condense and have a this very concise overview of all these complex and seemingly sometimes unrelated but very clearly related ideas of uh, Wolfgang Schmidt, and uh, we're just able to convey them in a very accessible way in a way that he probably isn't able to do because he knows it in such detail you know um so that was just uh really good so i just wanted to uh Thank give you. my compliments there uh and i think uh our dad wants wants to shift the topic to free will now if i'm not mistaken yeah so he left a comment on our last video he spoke about free will and in a private conversation he was asking me like like what is free will what is will even uh, will yeah yeah so, I, I thought that you guys did an excellent job in discussing the element free and free will but what i still missed was how do you guys actually look at will what is will yeah. what is it function why does it exist what is it so what is it tell me That's my question <laughs> um okay we can try to we could try to answer that but it won't be based on uh ancient sources i'm just going to start off going commonsensical about it and then we can see to what extent the common sense view is uh correct or all right helpful. yeah so i'll say one more thing in his in his comment uh buzz mentions the functions 
Perhaps it's a good idea to continue with the function of will in organisms, then in social animals, and finally in thinking beings. Perhaps social feelings regulate instinctive behavior, and thinking regulates social and instinctive behavior. Yeah, now, now, now you put the ball in my corner, so I have to start explaining <laughs> what it says there. Yeah, because I don't okay. think it was. Uh, no, no, for it's Aaron had some questions also. So okay, let's let's just try to see what we're talking about because. And now this is my materialist, okay? So my materialist me pops up and says, Satan. okay, my, my Satanist thing. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> my insolence, my free will. No, no. The idea is that uh, you have plants, um, organisms that behave like plants. They are fully regulated by uh, behaviors that are almost on the chemical level. Would you agree? So they they would turn to the sun, they would grow um, because of certain chemicals that are being produced, certain cells are being formed, or they would stretch out their roots into the yes. earth. Exactly. But I, I, I would just add to that is that, uh, I know Verveke always used the term, it has a certain structural funct uh, functional organization, and that means that it has a sort of design plan. Uh, yes. through which all those chemicals combine to create plants. That's, so that's gonna... the wonderful thing about it. And Aristotle will later expand the whole notion of soul to plants because of that reason. Yeah. But let's start with the materialist guys in the group. so we can. Yeah. At least... I'm just saying the chemicals by themselves do nothing. Like they need to assemble in a... In yeah, a... Well, it, that's the beautiful thing. And it's, it's wondrous. Yeah. To, it's a wonder to behold. But let's, let's first say, okay, the plant... That's that's the first test I would like to make, especially uh, uh, given that you can have so many different interpretations of words, is we would not immediately say that the plant has a will, only in a rather metaphorical sense we would say it. The plant wills uh, to the water, or the plant yeah. wills to the sun. Yeah, but you're right. Yeah? yeah? Um, and then... Evolution produces a second type of organ, organism that is motile. Motile meaning that it's able to move from a place where there's no food to a place where there is food. Or away from a place there where there's danger to a place where there's no danger. How does the organism know, or how is the, better still, how is the organism motivated, you have the same word, motivated, to make that motion? So, what did the archetype, God, evolution, what happened mm -hmm. that this motile organism that is able to move from one place to another, and, and, and Aristotle talks about this in De Motu Animalorum, that is able to move from one place to another, um, what does it need to do that? And Aristotle... Um, criticizes a group of thinkers before him who say that's the soul. The soul is, uh, the psyche in Greek, is the, is the entity um, that is connected to appetite. So if I see an apple there, I will move towards the apple. And then this whole structure of dopamine, etc., starts to kick in that actually rewards us for moving toward that apple. Mm -hmm. And a motile animal now, 
um, can go to a place where there are no apples to a place where there are apples simply because it valuates, and then we're back to uh, Peterson, because it has a value structure that it's better to have an apple than to have a rock. Now, this whole complex um, is sort of related to the concept of will, I guess. It wills to be from one place to another place. Because of the psyche? And that's what the Greeks before Aristotle would call the, the, the psyche. So yes. the psyche implies, modern English. It implies a free will, in a sense? Is that what you're saying? Well, we're, we're not talking will, freedom not, yet. Yes. Not yeah. yet. We're not yet that free. We're just talking about will first. Okay. Uh, you can you can also say like um, that you know because anima like it, it animates the, the 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 being of it because it drives. I it understand. Yeah. 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 That makes sense. Okay. Okay. So now we have something remotely resembling uh, the word will now because it wills to go from A to B. Yeah. Now. What the, the, the first the first um, elements that work there are basically very much plant-like. They're very mm -hmm. much instinctive. Um, uh, very simple organisms can now move towards the light. But now, since they're not simply an, a chemical extension, but they actually have to move there, they, for instance, have to be motivated by the desire to like a warmer environment or a more... Uh, illuminated environment and that's now now something very interesting kicks in we need to have a gratification system we need to feel happy moving towards and that's how the dopamine kicks into the system so the system now is rewarded internally mm -hmm. not yet by eating the apple but by moving towards the apple mm -hmm. So this whole idea of valuation and motivation and gratification now moves into place. And the first level that we talk about is instinct. We have instinctive behavior. And that's, if you are a materialist at heart, you will say that grew in evolution from plant-like organisms to animal-like organisms. And yeah. as soon as we talk about an organism that can do that willfully, we call it an animal. Yeah. Um, I, I just want to briefly interject. Like, I'm, I just have a... A question that you can answer later but to keep in mind while you're going to mm -hmm. continue your explanation which is just to say like that you've obviously you've asked this uh, question as a comment uh, below the video which means that part of me is anticipating that the reason you raised the the question was to make a point of some sort to at least drive the discussion somewhere different and right now i'm not yet seeing where that is but perhaps it's just because you want to discuss the will and there's no ulterior motive to it so i'm just curious if this is part of an argument or if it's just a different... Uh, okay, now, now that I'm at this level of an organism, so not yeah. yet a human being, I can ask you, would you consider this organism having a free will or a bound will? Oh, a bound will, yes. But can I interject very quickly? I don't understand what will is compared to, let's say... I mean, we're talking about things that are, like, for example, my five fingers growing this way. If if my body grows in that way, I don't see. I, I guess I don't understand the difference between will and free will because to me, will really sounds like something to do with agency, something to do with uh, wanting, and that may just be because of my modern cultural grammar. I don't understand. Yes, but <laughs> wanting is a very good word there because the word of appetite that is related to these ancients um, is about wanting to appreciate, to to have appetite okay. for, and and of course you're regulated. So if you're hungry. 
<laughs> then the value of eating something um, is salient. It comes to the forefront. Okay, I think I understand. The value of so so your whole your whole your whole being actually even determines which part of your valuation system takes precedence. Yeah. So it's like a yeah. deterministic uh, wanting, let's say, that you don't have. Well, at least I think we would argue that you don't have a free agency in that. Or yeah. at least, I mean, you have cancer cells also, right? Like you have you have um, people with six fingers. Like that, the, there is ways in which it can go differently than than you would say according to the archetype or according to the plan. Maybe yes. that is that it. Maybe there there's some sort of I don't know if it's free will or at least it's not a will you would want. We would call it stochastic behavior. Will uh, there can be dice? The dice can be rolled such that um, uh, very early at a point where your fifth finger um, has a misunderstanding, mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, some maybe uh, it got polluted somehow. But but somehow the two different cells started to develop tops. But I want to don't want to yeah. go there yet because then you're yeah, sort of. I, I also think we're, we're Aristotle. Might, we might be already. making this like unnecessarily complicated. Like right. I, I feel uh, like, and I'm not sure if all of this is necessary to make the point. It could be an interesting tangent, but maybe this is part of the point. So I think I will just answer your question from my own perspective, and then then you can say like whether or not that accounts for the point you're making at the moment, or whether you're gonna add something else. Which would be to um, uh, again say that the metacognition that we talked about earlier it has obviously the element of being aware of being aware so the double awareness awareness of yeah. aware and we're not there yet these are not organisms I know I know I know characterized by metacognition I'm just saying that makes it very helpful for us human beings to think of the uh, subject of free will because we can. We know what it feels like if we want something, but if we don't fully identify with that desire, like we kind of have this like, okay, for instance, uh, you know, like I'm, I might want the sugar, but I'm not sure if it's entirely my choice or if it's my appetites wanting it. And this, for instance, interesting if we compare it to an animal, and that's also why I said uh, with a bit more certainty that I think it's a bound will, is like it doesn't have that element of reflection as much where it's like, well, it's, it's driven by one thing now, isn't it? Yes. Exactly. Yeah. So, so there are no so, conflicting mm -hmm. desires at the moment. Yeah. In this animal, it is very well regulated. If it's thirsty, yeah. it wants to drink. If it's hungry, it wants to eat. Only if it's both hungry and thirsty, it may have to make a choice. Yeah. And and like for instance, if you'll feed it any sugar, it'll only stop eating when it's really nauseous. You know, like it's 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 when, like when the body says full. you're done. Yeah. Exactly. So not not when it's like oh well maybe I shouldn't have more. It probably exactly. not good for me. You know, like that's now we get to the second level. The second level would be we're no longer individual animals. We are cooperating animals. So, for instance, we're a group of a pack of wolves and we're hunting a prey. Now, the instinct would be once the prey has been hunted down, the instinct would be that everybody wants to eat. So the simple organism would go for the meat. And then, of course, they would eat each other. So what have wolves developed? They have developed a social order. So they say, well, no, my instinct says, I want to go to the meat. My social feeling now says, oh, but this is my leader. He or she will eat first, and only after that I will eat. But so it's now, hmm? exactly. Still very bound, yeah. That is still a bound will, but now we're bound by social uh, training, social regulating. 
-hmm. and and when you move with plato you would say from the epitumia you would now be bound by tumos mm -hmm. uh, so you would be bound first by social in by, by 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 physical instincts and now you're bound by social emotions and these yeah. are typically trained over time already yeah. at very young age animals i mean peterson is talking about the rats that are playing etc so these are very very uh, deeply embedded structures agreed yeah and then you see valuation systems within organisms that are not yet human huh? valuation systems that are competing um, and animals can be confused and depending on what kind of animal they are they will develop a stronger preference so for instance if i'm strong and i'm winning all the time i will develop more testosterone i will also uh, develop more um uh hormones that will make me bigger give me more muscle make me more at ease so that's interesting because the little lobsters that peterson was talking about they quite early early develop either into small lobsters that know that they have to walk away and big lobsters that know that they can eat so that's all hormonal that drives that uh so you what you want in a certain situation is driven by your developmental history and we would still call it a bound will and now as we have two wills now one bodily functions and one socially functions uh, from socially functions now plato would say we develop a third will we can be philosophers well, we can think about the future and we can think what would be a better future and the Bible will talk about spirit. We can think with Holy Spirit or polluted spirits. We can also have polluted thinking. Uh, but at least we would be able not just to say, I'm not eating now because my leader is sitting next to me. I could even say, well, I'm not eating at all because I don't think we should eat animals. So I've now developed a third will, mm -hmm. so to speak. I, th I think uh, you and I would have a debate to what extent that is uh, governed by social pressure still, but yes. No, 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 that's the idea. The Bible is very, the Bible, the Bible calls the heart the center of decision-making, the, the center of where the will is, 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 is um, focused onto a certain choice. And it's, and it's very critical. It says the way that our reasoning is, is it's very much dominated either by our flesh or by our, what the Bible would call the soul, different from what the Greeks would call it, but, but either by it, it's, so we would use our brain power for bullshit in terms of Faveki. Well, okay, no, no, okay, okay. So like now I have to uh, interject. Um, well, a couple of things. Like I think uh, Plato compares the three parts to the, the monster, the lion, and the, or the, 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 the monster, the, the lion, and the man, I think. Mm -hmm. Those are the three uh, parts that he connects it to. So it's not necessarily so the first, so the above top one is not like the philosopher, but it's like the man. So it's like for him, that's no, but I was talking about Republic where he and... makes a different distinction, but it's still the same three groups. Yeah, yeah. but I, I, I just want to clarify that for him, this is a universal human tendency and it's not just a sort of like a, an elite philosophical thing, uh, even though he thinks that many of us are governed indeed by our lower instincts. And no, but that's not a disagreement, Aaron. That's that's simply a different place. I know, I know. It, 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 it's a clarification. It's clarification. Yeah, then yeah, the yeah, then yeah. the potential disagreement, or like I'm not sure if it's a disagreement, but it's to say like you know you and I have both 
read and admired uh, the work because so uh, because we're in large agreement with it, but also because it's so accessible, so it's easy to then <laughs> give it or sell it to other people. Is the work of Jonathan Haidt, and he, you know that he talks about the elephant and the rider, and in some sense, like obviously, there's then a huge agreement with what you're saying. Is like, well, the elephant. You know, the elephant drives you like the, the elephant, if the elephant wants to go somewhere, I mean, the rider can, you know, complain, but the elef elephant will still go. That said, obviously, there's also something like, okay, we can, the rider and the elephant can learn over time to harmonically work together. And in some ways that the, that the rider could also slowly gain more agency over it. Not in a way like, okay, now the elephant is Now we're getting to the virtue discussion. Yeah, exactly. 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 And, and, I'm just, and I'm just saying, so therefore, just like, it's not... there, but that's fine. That's good. Yeah. That's so, good. so so it's yeah. not just for bullshitting ourselves. It's actually for that harmonization of. No, 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 no. What I'm saying is we often use it for bullshitting. Correct. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So yeah. we yeah. often think we are thinking we are free, but we are actually just after the fact reasoning why we did something rather than yeah. understanding uh, yeah. how to improve our future. Okay, correct. You know, I just wanted to clarify that, and now, yeah. now we're back on track. Yeah. So what the Bible would call a free will is a liberated will, mm -hmm. not so much that it's completely free, but that it is free to course correct, just like social instinct, social emotions course corrected uh, the instincts of the wolves. Now we have a faculty that could course correct both social emotions and physical instincts, and what the Bible would say is our being free would mean that we can escape that deterministic part. It would not be a unconditional freedom because it would embrace the leading force being the Holy Spirit, being something that guides us to what we agree with is something good. So yeah. we would sort of become the servant of God. Well, and being so like, the servant of God would help us course correct, not not deny our physical needs, not deny our social needs, but to bring that in balance. And Plato would call the, the function of the king to make to 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 under the guidance of the philosopher to give to to give the city balance that each and every function is uh, well treated. Because as Hyde said, the elephant moves you. It's the body that moves you. It's the soul. That course corrects it's the and then it's 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 the 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 well-governed mind i would say it's the mind with the good daimon the eudaimonia and now we get to a different definition of uh, eudaimonia it would be the good diamond that uh, the well-led mind that yeah. socrates would talk about and that is the human flourishing is that all three are aligned yeah and i, and I would also say like in that respect actually if we could get into the head of the elephant a little bit the elephant would at some point maybe think like well it's it's the rider that is moving me even though obviously the elephant is moving but at that point it's like the elephant would be in line with the rider and would be like well if the rider wants to go i i want to go with it because he's treated me well he knows where my excesses are where my uh, you know when i need something and yeah yeah, so, well, that's beautiful so, because Aristotle is working with that as well. Eh? What is moving the movement? So yeah. in De Motu Animalorum, he is saying, well, the, the, the animal needs to have a, a, a physique that's able to move. If you can't move, there's no use of having a soul, of having a, um, yeah. uh, an appetite, because, well, you can't do anything with it. So you yeah. have to have that. 
and then and then and then the whole discussion between the within the ancients was is is the soul itself moving yeah <clears throat> and then within that is the noose moving the soul is the soul moving the body and yeah. the noose would then of course be slightly different from the christian understanding and the ancient hebrew well, understanding yes but like maybe that that's just one thing that i wanted to add like not as, as a disagreement but just for everyone who is watching or listening is like there is a what complicates this discussion as well is that in the theological tradition and in some philosoph uh, philosophical understandings of it, freedom is precisely associated with actually being indeed determined in some ways or being uh, in service to God, for instance, that can be it. So if you're fully free, you're actually fully in service. And that sounds very strange to us modern thinkers because we're like, what? But if you're free, you should do whatever you want and not, you know, serve someone else. Uh, and the same thing, or like if you're fully free, actually you're fully determined by certain things. Uh, that sounds kind of similar, or indeed like according yep. to Kant, like you're only fully free if you follow the categorical imperative. If you don't, you're actually bound by your desires and all that. And that's the other aspect where indeed in our contemporary thinking of free will, we obviously tend to leave the God question out of it. And we say like, no, we're free if, for instance, we have a certain degree of moral autonomy, you know, that we have moral uh, culpability in case you know we're doing something wrong and that actually yes we had the choice not to so we we kind of leave the god question out of it but that also complicates and muddies this uh this this domain very much so i just wanted to yeah. add that would it be but, fair to say that we are free in choosing what bounds us yeah <laughs> wonderful because now we're getting somewhere because it feels like you can choose your desires in a sense like you have i, f I really feel that i have some agency and being like Am I choosing the devil or am I choosing, you know? Like, well, that's, that's be... the, what you're saying now is the essence. Yeah. So if we do, if you lead Sapolsky on behave, um, he's absolutely right. There is no free will. I mean, the, the act that I'm going to do in this very instance is determined by so many things that have preceded it. Microseconds to millions of years before. But what I'm doing right now even though my brain would fire up uh, preparing me to say a word or what have you, um, I, I have the opportunity to sit back and to say, how do I want to be guided? And if I want to be guided by certain principles, I can actually start training my soul, training my psyche, training my social emotions, and training my body in that way. So we that freedom is very restricted. I mean, we do need oxygen. My body needs oxygen. We do need sleep. We do. Uh, of course, there are Indian sages that can float, etc. You know more about it than I do, uh, Lucas. But, 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 but that that kind of uh, um, stories, I would rather say. Well, it's better to just acknowledge that we are bodily creatures, and that we are very much restricted. But we can choose how within that body, how within that soul, we want to choose the eudaimonia, the, the, the good leadership, and then start training it. And then is what, when uh, the whole discussion about virtue comes in, because virtue is trained behavior, it's trained good behavior. Mm -hmm. Would you agree with that, Adam? No, yeah, I mean, I think I, think I largely would. I think I would also add that the moment when um, certain cognitive scientists were having findings on free will. And again, like I've talked about this with you the during our last um, discussion, Lucas. Um, but 
because they were very like sort of simplistic experiments. But that said, they some of them still hypothesized like maybe we don't have a free will, but we might have a free won't, you know, like we might be free to sometimes say what we don't want to do. And that's actually interesting. And that means that, you know, we might be constantly bound. I'm not, not saying this correct. I'm just saying it's, it's, it's an interesting uh, thought to work with. We might be constantly, uh, constantly bound by sort of drives uh, and they can be divine drives or they can be instinctive drive drives uh it's, it's kind of hard to say uh, and they might in a positive way move us towards certain things and then it might be that we still sometimes actually have the capacity to say like no that's not what i want and find a different drive to then be determined by that you know but that in effect that becomes a form of free will because it's like we're still able to not do something um, but it becomes very difficult because sometimes the drive is very strong and we haven't trained that capacity to not do something very well, for instance. So I, I don't know if you, if you kind well, of... Let me give you an example. Maybe that works. <clears throat> um, I was with a group of students. I was a student myself. Um, so I was about Lucas's age. And um, I, I was a Christian for some time. So I, I had been trained in the value of honesty. Hmm. Um, we played midget golf in the um, uh, in the recreation uh, area where we where we were for a weekend, and then uh, some of us got into a discussion whether or not we paid for it in full or not with the uh, the owner, and the owner said you hadn't, and they said well we have, and then um, uh, and then of course the owner being a friendly man and did didn't want to upset his customers, he gave the 10 bucks to us and we walked off. And then one of the students found the 10 bucks, the original 10 bucks that had never been paid in his pocket. And I immediately turned around and they were looking at me at, what, what are you doing? But yeah. my body was already primed to go around the moment that he found that money. Yeah, 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 so yeah. I was not free in that, in that response. That response was completely programmed. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. I had the same recently when we were like doing, uh, we were ordering pizzas and you like, it was one of those things where you would uh, check off the boxes and that, uh, the, that the woman at the cashier, she asked us like, okay, so you ordered seven pizzas, right? And I was like, no, six. And then she checked six and a friend of mine was like, why did you say that? We could have had seven tick boxes. And I was like, well, I mean, she asked the question. I'm not going to lie. I'm betting that your brain scan would show that you were saying six already before you heard the end of the question. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. That's my point. You have only one decision to make is whether to follow God or not. That's your only free choice you get in life. Yeah, but I would be careful with that language for... I know that language. You don't like that language. No, so... I mean, so the thing is, like, you have to understand, like, I'm, I'm obviously... I'm teaching as well, and I'm not teaching to religious uh, people. No, 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 I am. I am. I'm, yeah. I'm a theologian. So you I largely do... are. So for me, actually, this is like, okay, I, I want to keep this um, as grounded in a secular PG. perspective as is possible. Yeah. PG, maybe. Yeah. yeah. No, but but it, let's, let's make, I, I can use different language. Like, um, I'm choosing which diamond to follow. That's the one choice I get. And then by discipline, and this must <laughs> be something. Not that much better. Like, my teacher is like, uh, Which demon should I follow? 
Well, that's yeah. it. Huh? It's a diamond. But, but, but you could say, for instance, like the value of honesty, you know, like I, I'm not going to tell my students, like if you're, uh, you know, performing at your test, please don't follow the, the your your demons that are motivating you to cheat. Like I'm going to say, like, you know, like. We're not going to use that language. Yeah. Oh, I like the language. I really like the language. It's oh, of just, course. Uh... I mean, I do too, but I'm just saying that there's a. <laughs> no, I agree. I agree. I understand. But you teach university but... students, huh? Yes, mm? yes. yes. That's you great. teach university students also. We did last year. We did so so year you must before. you must have adapted a little bit, otherwise you probably lost them all. I I, I did get I did not get any uh, uh, how do you how do you call that any complaints or um, uh, it was in an economics faculty, so it's so no, nobody mind nobody okay. minds using some philosophical language, but I can't overdo it. Okay. Good. Or theological language or philosophical language so so we sort of by using both sapolsky on the biology and then using uh, height on the moral psychology and then uh, go so you use all those different areas and then they're fine with oh well, he's throwing a little bit of this into it as well well the thing but, is like so, yeah so i i had to teach um uh, socrates last week and then uh, you know humble brag <laughs> no but i would just say like you did we all know that uh uh, Socrates also had a diamond and uh, and he talked about that openly and then you know my students and they were non-philosophy students so they also asked like what what is that you know and I'm like well I mean like for him like yes this was an entity but I think probably many of us today would call it our conscience but for that's him epic. this was an entity you know and that's and that helps them if I call it a conscience like for them yeah. like all right yeah because we have a conscience that tells us whether or not to do something See, this is Peterson yeah. huh? Yeah, <laughs> like that little voice, that little voice. I ask everyone, do they have the little voice? And most of them say they do. But um, so I like this. I like this uh, bridge. But I also yeah. like for them to eventually see like, wait, actually, if I keep thinking about it as conscience, I'm missing something. It's like the same as reducing God to an idea. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like you, you do lose something. So I like um, I like both of your uh, your paths, yeah. right? No, I mean, I totally agree. I, I just, I just hope, I just wanted to work on all levels. Yeah, no, no, of course. And then to show that indeed the level on which I'm explaining it is, in some ways, more uh, universally accepted. Right yet, now, yeah. You know, less right now, exactly. Um, not in history, <laughs> like yeah. at the very moment in the secular West. I obviously mean, <laughs> so not so universal after all. Um, but yet it's much more shallow compared to indeed these historical understandings we have of it. So well, that's, well, that's a good thing about the word conscious. I mean, most of us have an underdeveloped conscious. I follow an underdeveloped conscious. That's yeah. like a huge positive statement. Yeah. Yeah. And then, of course, as a philosophy teacher, you want to help them develop that conscious. But how if there's not something to aspire to? And then we get to theological notions. You no, know, usually the thing to aspire to is, will this be on the exam, yes or no? And then yes, uh, that's, yeah, that's that's, that's 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 again an underdeveloped notion of <laughs> aspiration. Yeah. It's yeah. not exactly the the good, the true, and the beautiful. Yeah, exactly. Uh, like they're asking, like, should I value this based on my academic per performance, not on whether or not it's a good one? So may I may I just for fun, yeah, ask you how these evolutionary principles like the motile animal, not yet a social animal, then the social animal, and then the uh, sapiential or the thinking animal, the sentient animal, how that could relate to uh, 
the uh, the the beautiful, the good, and the true. So, I think the answer is, and I think we discussed this before, is in Plato's Symposium. <laughs> you know, it's like that uh, we seem to have an erotic drive, and that's and that's and that's universal. And that's the beauty of it, huh? Right, now, exactly. I think that the whole thing about when you when you look at tests that people do, the science of, of beauty, it's really developmental science of good development. It's uh, uh, apples are actually in plants and trees are in interaction with animals to say what's beautiful. Like for instance, the beautiful round shape of an apple. Mm -hmm. It's it's coloring makes it beautiful to us, makes it desirable to us, and we use the same elements if we are talking about mating. Yeah. Behavior. It's so there's a sort of dialectic between yeah. the plant and the mammal. And I would even say probably the the apps on our screen, like you know, they yeah. also attract yeah. us because they're so colorized because of it. Yeah. But, um, but isn't yeah. it beautiful that the first qualia of finding God is based on our bodily functions, the way that our appetite has been trained to go to a healthy situation, and beauty exemplifies. Um, um, what is good about our body. Now, goodness, of course, is what is good about our society. Goodness is, is something that takes place between social animals. Yeah. Goodness is harmony. Goodness is reconciliation. Goodness is that we can cooperate and survive as, as a group. No, I think, like, so I, I want to add to this because I think, like, this, now you're going very Aristotelian and I, and I, and I totally... Uh, well, I appreciate that perspective. And at the same time, I also, I think what I've, and that's, I guess, more the the esoteric uh, perspective is that we we see this in like the Zen tradition and you see it in like Meister Eckhart, you know, and then you get all these statements that are paradoxical. And for instance, Heraclitus has, has it as well. So like, and, and basically the coincidence of opposites, you know, and that is something that is not easily accounted for within the view that you're just laying out because on a more basic ground level we can sort of all agree on you know no coincidence of opposites but that it just sort of harmonically sort of uh, builds up but then at some point it we arrive at this point where we have to accept certain paradoxes to sort of get to the to the full as full as it can be perspective view way of being um uh, difficult to even give words 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 to it and that's like i think where this perspective no longer happens where you realize like no actually i can no longer just you know rely on everything that i cognitively know to be the case because it builds up from the bottom to the top it's like no actually now at this point no now now i agree with you 100 percent. this is where my theologian kicks in yeah uh, so what what uh, we haven't discussed the true yet but the true is related to the spirit being able to move through time see patterns and pattern is very much when you go to Peugeot and to Peterson etc if you recognize the pattern of your um, of the things that you experience the phenomena in the real world if you recognize the pattern behind it or if you see the pattern that you see for the future that's what we call a plan <laughs> seeing being realized today that's when we experience truth we say oh that was truth it's really happening now so we, and and I think when you add the three, nothing can be truly good that is not also truly true and truly beautiful. So, so that's the whole discussion. Yeah. And then you, I agree. And then you are in awe. And now we'll go back to a little bit my materialist 
background again, it's, it's, it's astounding that this universe actually holds up. We need certain constants to be exactly those constants for this universe to hold up. It's astounding that life came to be and that sentient beings came to be. I think there's a lot of ways that evolution could have taken place, but it all seems to gear towards something that can appreciate truth, beauty, and goodness. Mm -hmm. <laughs> How is that possible? Well, I mean, okay, from an evolutionary perspective, it's like... We no, 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 go, go full, go full neoplatonist if you like. <laughs> go ahead. No, I'm just saying, like that. You know, it seems we're evolved to appreciate truth, beauty, and goodness because they help us organize into uh, social dynamics that are useful for the survival of our species, and therefore, yeah, yeah, no, no, I just we just laid out the case for that, and therefore we so find it everywhere it else. Actually... Yeah, but it's so it's so it's it's yeah. so strange that actually this universe is, in a way, doing exactly that. Yeah, he's yeah. he's asking for a deeper a deeper cause, so it's yeah. not just. I, I think I know what you mean. <laughs> You've also used this uh, example when I asked you about aliens, and you were like, "Well, it's so perfect here." You know, they always because you have this thing. It's called the Drake equation for aliens, and it's like, according to the Drake equation. Um, given that there's so many galaxies, there has to be alien life. And, mm -hmm. and you would always say to me, like, but it's so, you know, everything is so perfect. I don't know well, if I'm that's... completely open to alien life. Yeah, I know you are. I don't have a problem with that, except no, no, that if they discover us and they're more advanced, we're not likely to survive it. Although, like Pliny, who actually went out on a little boat to see the Vesuvius explode, the, 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 the openness in us would actually appreciate still seeing the alien. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, for sure. Having said so, now the materialists can only explain all of this if they assume that sentient life develops in many different life forms all across the galaxies. Otherwise, it's 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 too big for words that it only happens here. So you need all those different uh, aliens in order to maintain your materialist worldview. And same yeah. goes for the universe. You need a multitude of universes. You need billions and trillions of universes to to just start before you get all the different uh, parameters just right for a universe to even exist. Sorry. Yeah. Uh, no, I I just want to add like that. This is like I think this has kind of become uh, almost a meme. I think at this point that like that that most of the uh atheist thinkers they've acknowledged the strength of the fine-tuning argument is like that it's just it seems to so perfect that it does seem to suggest some kind of you know divine architect um and having said that i also know that it's it's the type of arguments that tend to um how should i say it they tend to persuade believers and they tend to alienate non-believers so but, I, I, i'm not i don't use the argument i use it the other way around what i say is as a believer mm -hmm. i don't have a problem with aliens as a non-believer you would need to have a big problem if there are no aliens mm -hmm. it's the other way around you cannot maintain your worldview if there are not many universes and not many different uh places in the universe where there is sentient life yeah, I agree. That that's kind of what I mean with the fine tuning argument, which is also why I think they're expecting to still at some point discover aliens, or at least until then to at least entertain the thought that they're out there, but 
too far yeah. out of reach. Yeah. We, we were, as, as a believer, I would not have a problem if God, God says to Israel, do you think I'm not the God of the Ethiopians as well? So I wouldn't have a problem if there's another planet with sentient life. I wouldn't have a problem at yeah. all. Uh, on the other hand, they would need to have a problem just from a, uh, a, a, a from 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 the, from a simple materialist point of view, they would already need to have a problem with it. Yeah. Now, so let's now just take the assumption that it is intended, and then we say, okay, well, if this is the intention of creation, then we see something of a telos. Right? We see the aspiration towards the true, the beautiful, and the good. So it's no wonder that that is how evolution develops because it's the telos of evolution yeah i don't know if, if that argument holds for you but it requires the first jump of faith to just say well okay um, yeah like yeah. For, for for me i did like as an academic i like to suspend judgment but as a you know as someone who was full of wonder and uh, is interested in the religious and spiritual aspect of life i fully entertain that perspective but I, I also like I, I suspend judgment because I'm like I'm open to anything happening that will convince me otherwise in some ways you know like that maybe something awful will happen where I'm like where it doesn't seem like even probably beyond my own lifetime where I am no longer persuaded like actually this doesn't seem like also harmonic but like thus far yeah I, I agree even though obviously like we've also it's not like you know it's been a perfect uh, walk in the park for uh you know, the history of uh, Earth, but at the same time, all in all, yeah, it does seem You don't want it to be also, I would say. No. But uh, guys, I want to close off because I hear people cooking and I don't want to. <laughs> <laughs> but I want to say um, thank you. I really appreciate both of your perspectives so much and I'm glad to see it finally on screen. I hope people will appreciate the dynamic. I certainly enjoyed it a lot and I much prefer it over your text. So... Um, Guys, do you have anything to promote, Aaron? Well, I mean, I, I, I guess I'll, I'll just add, like, for those who are interested, it's like that there will be, um, I think I mentioned, mentioned this before, but there will be a festival in Mannheim in the at the 20th, 7th of October, I think until the 29th. Uh, and it will be with, you know, people from this little corner of the internet. So you have uh, Paul van der Klei, Thomas Steininger, they just actually had a conversation out on, on, on uh, Paul's channel. Uh, Andrea with, with the bangs will do it from a more cultural perspective. Uh, so I think that should be really good. And I'm going to talk about Nietzsche there. So uh, yeah, please all do join. <laughs> That'd be yeah, great. and I would like to add, you're talking about Nietzsche and fitness, huh? Yeah, I'm, 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 I'm still, I'm, I'm still obviously like finishing up the argument, but like that's, that's definitely where I want to go because it seems the right place at this culture to consider as a potential adversary. <laughs> well, <laughs> the interesting thing is the only one who can really claim some fitness uh, in our group. I mean, you, you're fine with your running. Uh, I don't know, <laughs> no, no disrespect there, but I think uh, Lucas has also mastered the discipline of the body. Uh, yeah, yeah, so. yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's for sure. No, Lucas is like uh, is acting out the Nietzscheanism much more than I do. Yeah, that's for the sure. Hubermensch. Yeah, the Hubermensch, exactly. Which is why, like, actually... Shout like, out to Huberman, by the way. He's praying. Shout out. I, I, yeah, exactly. Like, I was thinking of maybe using that during the talk, like, as a, an interesting thought. Like, my brother came up with this idea that he might be the, you know, Huberman, Ubermensch. Like, it's an interesting uh, synchronicity. But then, you know, he, he said that he's praying. So that actually makes a little bit less Ubermenschlich. 
So yeah, I'm happy. I'm happy. Okay, guys. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you too. We'll man. see you soon. You'll be bye back, bye. right? All yes. right. See you. Bye bye.